WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. When you think of Barbie, what comes to mind? When I think of Barbie, I see a little white doll with blue eyes and blonde hair and pink lips and just in, in all pink. That's what I think. I just found Barbie to be unrealistic. Like, I remember thinking, okay, so Barbie is what I am supposed to grow into being. You know, maybe when I was a grown-up, I would look like that, but I knew my mom was a grown-up and didn't look like that. So I was like, trash. Barbie was white. You know, Ken was white. Like, that, that was what you saw. So I, I guess when I saw a black Barbie, I was like, oh, they make, they make black Barbies. Well, in my head, black Barbie came to be because somebody black was at Mattel, and they were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Rose her hand in the meeting. Excuse me, does anybody see the holes here? That this is, this is not right. There's nobody that looks like me. And all the white people at Mattel were like, oh, I, we never thought about that. I guess, I guess that is true. But who's gonna buy that? Mm, I don't know. And the black person was like, mm, uh, I would, and everybody I know will. People at Mattel were like, Mm, but we need a little bit more than that. I don't know. We don't want to put all this money out for something that isn't going to sell. And it took said black person to keep telling them of the value that it had. And they finally pulled the trigger. And in my head, that's how it came to be. All those voices including Gabourey Sidibe, the Academy Award-nominated film actor, are part of the new documentary film, Black Barbie, by Legeria Davis, which explores the history and the impact of Barbie culture through representation and its absence. Premiering in March of 2023 in the South by Southwest Film Festival, Black Barbie was chosen for the 2019 Working Films Kukalora's Works in Progress Film Lab. Just four years later, Black Barbie will enjoy a prime spot in the 2023 Kukalora's Film Festival in November. Filmmaker Legeria Davis has already earned a handful of screenplay writing awards, including for Maid of Dishonor, a 2016 feature she co-wrote. Four other scripts of hers have placed in the Austin Film Festival screenplay competition, and her short film, Light in Dark Places, has landed a streaming deal with Amazon. She joins us now from Los Angeles. Legeria Davis, welcome to Coastline. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. It's great to have you with us. Now, I, before we get into some of the things you uncover during this film, let's talk about the lens through which you chose to tell the story. Not every documentary filmmaker uses their own experience as one of the, the narrative lenses, but you talk about little Legeria a couple of times. How did this little girl who didn't play with dolls shape the film? Um, I think Little Legeria inspired me to want to kind of like talk about what it means to be a little kid and not necessarily see yourself in the toys that you're playing and in the world that you're navigating and seeing yourself in a very authentic, intentional way. 
Um, and so this film for me felt like an homage to her to be able to say the things that she couldn't say when she was little. And I feel like a lot of the adults that we talk to talk about their little selves and not having the language to really art, you know, articulate um, at that time, you know, like what it meant for them to um, not see themselves authentically represented, you know? Um, and so, yeah. 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 And you, you didn't even know that your own aunt <laughs> had such a hand in the creation of Barbie until you were an adult and already were involved in filmmaking. Can you tell us how you found out that the iconic Beulah Mae Mitchell was part of Barbie history? Exactly. You know, I met my aunt, you know, twice and as a, as a kid. She came to Texas where I grew up um, two times. And I knew she worked for Mattel. We got some dolls from her as uh, a kid, you know, but it really wasn't until I moved to LA where she lives um, that I was able to stay with her. And we realized we didn't really know each other. And so her being just the warm um, person that she is, um, she was like, do you drink? I was like, yeah, I do. She's like, well, I have some Manischewitz. You know, I'm like, okay, <laughs> great. She brings out some snacks, pours us some Manischewitz. And she's like, I thought we should get to know each other. I'll tell you about me. You tell me about you. And so she's telling me about her. And I'm like, yo, I knew you worked for Mattel. But wait, come again? You were on that first Barbie line in 1959? Wow. And, you know, it was in that moment that I realized that my my aunt, you know, of course, we're all living history, um, but you don't really connect that dot, you know, as you're living it, right? And her telling me about the history she lived and being on that first Barbie line and being like, then, you know, I was like with, you know, my other Black women on the assembly line, why not make a black Barbie? Why not make a Barbie that looks like me? You know, and from there, you know, 21 years later, we would get the very first black fashion doll from Mattel that was um, named Barbie, um, black Barbie to be. Um, and before that, you know, they released a handful of um, black fashion dolls that were friends of Barbie. And so um, in our film, we make the distinction between the, like the difference between Black Barbie that was released in 1988 and the Colored Francie in 1967, the Christie in 1968. Um, and we explore that difference between the yeah. And that is a, a deep and involved exploration. But just since you brought that up, can you explain why Black Barbie was was a really important moment in terms of representation and why the friends of Barbie didn't quite cut the mustard? Like it, it wh- yeah. what does that say? The fact that 
we have a black friend of Barbie, but we don't have a black Barbie. You know, I think um, in speaking to that, we have to also be able to speak about, go back to the lens and the gaze and what you asked me about earlier. And so, of course, from that gaze, the white gaze, um, releasing um, a Francie and a Chrissy and 67, 68, Julia, releasing these black fashion dolls that were friends of Barbie seems very progressive. Um, you know, interracial, anything back then was um, illegal, not allowed. And so, great. That's amazing to have that gaze and that lens um, with that particular narrative. And so what we've done with our film is we've entered through a different gaze in which to talk about Barbie, a black woman gaze to be exact. And from this narrative and from this gaze, having the dolls, the black fashion dolls that came before that were friends of Barbie is seen as we asked for a black Barbie, but you gave us crumbs been invited to the table to eat the crumbs, be grateful, be thankful you're here. What else do you want? That kind of um, what we've gotten used to being okay with and not questioning, I think. And so our film takes a really inquisitive um, approach to these, you know, what we've come to normalize and standards that we don't question. Um, and I think it speaks to why it's important to have different narratives um, that shape history. Um, there's more than one truth. You, you said to Sheila Flynn of The Independent, I hope that by gazing at Barbie through the lens of a black woman and through the lens of black women, that we get a better sense of and find a way to relate to what it means for people of color to navigate white spaces. And I thought that was such a, um, a clear way of exposing what, it, first of all, for white people, that there is such a thing as needing to navigate white spaces when you're not white. What, what does this understanding mean to you? Why, why is that so important? And I, we're going to get cut off, but you can start your answer and then we'll come back and, and pick it up. Absolutely. You know, I think you spoke about what was important about Black Barbie. And for someone who did not grow up liking, who did, you know, grow up like not liking dolls, I think the importance is as a young woman now, <laughs> discovering Black Barbie for the first time, I was relating to her journey, her 21 year journey, um, navigating the white Barbie space. And that's a piece of plastic. And that is a piece of plastic. And that's what it took for a piece of plastic to be worthy of the Barbie brand name. And we're going to come back and pick this up 
This is important. You're listening to Coastline. Filmmaker Legeria Davis is my guest today. Her documentary, Black Barbie, is part of the Kukalora Slate in 2023. After this short break, we'll also find out what a Mattel executive tells her about their DEI efforts. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Black Barbie, the documentary film by Legeria Davis, explores the way the doll shapes the culture and ultimately the way people think about themselves. Simply put, it's a close look at representation and how it affects the way we see ourselves. The story starts with Legeria's aunt, Beulah Mae Mitchell, who was on the original Barbie manufacturing line and worked for Mattel for more than four decades. And Legeria, just before we went to break, we were talking about why having a black Barbie as opposed to Barbie's black friend, Julia, or Kirsty, or I, I don't know what the names of these dolls are, but why that was actually critical. And you you explained it and then wound up saying, but it's <laughs> it's a piece of we're talking about a piece of plastic. Yeah, we're talking about a piece of plastic being worthy of the Barbie brand name, you know, finally, um, after 21 years. And, you know, that got me thinking about, you know, what it means to actually navigate white spaces as a black woman and not be a a piece of plastic. How can we capture the humanity here? Um, And you do that so well and clearly in this film. You yourself, because you didn't play with dolls, admit that you're surprised by how many black women love black Barbies. And you interviewed a woman, Isis Mackenzie Johnson, who was a, a professional beauty queen, Miss Black California. And in this clip, she's explaining what Black Barbie meant to her. So let's listen. I initially fell in love with Black Barbie when I was a teenager. Coming from Watts in South Central LA, there was so much hardship. You didn't have time to focus on vanity. You just want to get through the day. And then when my family finally moved out of the inner city and we made it to Rancho Cucamonga, there wasn't that many people of color that were there. So I was called nigger, I was called chocolate bar, I was called so many derogatory words and names to describe me because of the way I looked. Oh my gosh, I'm totally ruining my makeup. Um. And there was nothing that I can relate to when I would watch television that I could associate myself and find an escape from the reality that was beating me up because of the way I look. Because most kids escape to television, but whenever I would watch TV, everyone was still white. And when I finally started seeing a few shows where there were black people, they were always poor. It was always a reminder of the struggle is always going to be real for you. So when Black Barbies finally came on the market, she represented success. She represented beauty 
and I could see possibility in her for myself. The little white girl's hat, they could see possibility in their Barbies. I would look in that Barbie and I would try to see possibility, but I'd be reminded through my reality that that's not your possibility because you're black. And uh, when Black Barbie came out, I was like, no, I think it is possible for me. So I, I don't, all the haters out there can kick rocks because it did a lot for me. Black Barbies did a lot for me. Isis Mackenzie Johnson in the documentary film Black Barbie. Legeria Davis, in, watching this clip, it almost looked as if her breaking down it surprised her too. Like she didn't expect to get that emotional for this to go so deep. What did that moment do to you? Do you remember shooting this? I do. Yeah, what um, did that moment... I remember sitting down with everyone. Um, yeah, and that moment, um, because when you look at Isis, she's beautiful. She's, um, and she's, as you can tell, very articulate and very smart. And, um, but there was an understanding, a relatability that you know, was going deep with myself as well. And I think a lot of the people in the room, um, I feel like today we talk about representation matters, but what does that mean? Right now it feels as if it's um, a throwaway line. We see performative measures, you know, in action um, without really moving the needle of progress. Um, any, if anything, what we're seeing is a rollback of, of progress. Um, and I think what we've been able to do with our film is really dive deep into why representation matters yeah. and how representation matters um, beyond the bottom line. Um, these things um, resonate very deeply um, with a lot of the people that we spoke with in our film. Um, and that is their lived experience. <clears throat> and there is an intersection here between the feminist issue that Barbie the doll raises the unnatural physical standards that set up a culture's view of a woman's value, regardless of race, and the issue about race, just the way anti-racism and feminism intersect across the board. And it was interesting to watch this you know, former Miss Cal Miss Black California, who, as you say, she is a stunning beauty, and she she meets all the Barbie standards. I mean, she has the beautiful um, Barbie chiseled. She looks like Black Barbie herself. She just does. She looks like what you, you know. She could be a Black Barbie. So, how do you think about that when you're approaching this issue as well? And is that secondary to the to the other issue of representation, because you also had um, Gabourey Sidibe talk about the unnatural standards in a completely unrealistic in the beginning of this film. How do you think about that? 
I do think of it um, a little bit as secondary. Like I think that initially when you think about Black Barbie, a documentary and what that could be about, that maybe you would think we'd be going in to talk about this beauty standard. Um, and for me, after talking with my aunt and getting a better understanding as to why she collects dolls, um, black dolls, and seeing that women of a certain age, women of my aunt's age collect, a lot of black women that age collect black dolls. And it stems from a lack of. And I really kind of went in to understand the psychology somewhat behind that. And since it's intergenerational and I'm talking with her and not having an understanding of what it means to have that lack and be absent in that mirror. Um, for Barbie to set that standard in beauty and to then not be um, present definitely can, I can see how that disconnect can happen and thinking you're not a part of that same beauty standard. Um, so we do touch on that, but it is just, I think, a very nuanced um, conversation. And um, hopefully you watch the film and I feel like we're able to really talk about the breadth um, of the experience of for black women navigating this stand, the many different standards that come with seeing yourself as beautiful, aspirational, being able to do the things that Barbie asks you to imagine. And for a long time, she asked you to imagine but she only came in one form, the blonde haired, blue eyed, pink lipped form that, you know, and so as Isis so eloquently put it, it's hard to see yourself there. And then especially when you're reminded through your reality that even if it's there, it still may be attain unattainable because of quote unquote, your position and station in life. And I, I want to get to, you spoke with a Mattel executive, um, head of DEI, I think, Mason Williams. And so uh, we have a, a short clip from him. But first, I just want to ask you about your interactions with Mattel about this movie. I mean, you knew that the, the big budget studio film starring Margot Robbie was in the works. And when you and I first spoke... You hadn't seen it. Uh, it. It at that point was kind of feeling like an affirmation of all the things you're pointing out in your documentary film, Black Barbie. Have you seen it now and have your feelings changed about it? And this is the only question I'm going to ask you about that movie and we're going to move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I have seen it um, a couple of times, actually. Um, and I think our the film is in direct conversation with it. Um, you spoke earlier about the intersectionality of things and there is no separation for black women 
we are black and we are women. Um, and sometimes it feels as if we're asked to choose between the two. And it's not like we can take, we can't choose, it's not a choice. And so I think that film was, it did what it needed to do with um, feminism. And as they say, you know, the term like white feminism um, and diversity was in the space. Um, and so great. I think it, it, it comes back to the lens and the gaze. And I feel like the filmmakers did what they needed to do through their gaze and lens. And that was their story to tell, you know. Fair enough. Okay. So let's talk about, you had access <laughs> to uh, Mason Williams, who is head of diversity and inclusion for Mattel. And he is also a person of color. And so let's let's listen first to what he tells you in the in your film Black Barbie. Increased inclusivity and, and, and representation is happening. Uh, I, I think the number one thing to think about again is is pace matters and sustained pace that is achievable and shows market impact is better than a moment in time. If it doesn't, if, if we don't see the, the progress at the speed with which I want to see it, or you may want to see it, or whomever wants to see it, that's okay, because my expectation is, is to continue to push that. And my realization is that if it moves a little bit, I'm doing the job. We're doing the job. That's Mason Williams Mattel's DEI executive in Black Barbie, a new documentary film by Legeria Davis. Ladaria, lots of people from corporate America who've dealt with bureaucratic red tape hear that and think, yeah, I get where he's coming from. Sure, he was he was squirming a little in this clip. How do you how do you feel about what he said? I mean, I think it just goes back to what we were talking about earlier and navigating white spaces. Um, I mean, I think back in my aunt's day, they would call it shucking and jiving, or just navigating in a way in which to have some visibility, to be seen, to be heard, and the needle of progress moving so slowly. And again, as I mentioned earlier, it feels like there's so many things just, that are just rolling back and being pushed back. and. Um, we're always, it feels like, going to be fighting to move the needle very slowly, pushing to move the needle very slowly. And until we're, um, we make our own tables, um, and until we're invited to the tables um, and representation outside of checking a box of how many people you have in the space that are diverse, but also taking into account um, diversity of thought and being able to sit at that table and say, this is important and be heard. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we still have a long ways to go. Um, and 
we're all in this space trying to move the needle forward. And we all have to tell ourselves what we need to tell ourselves to feel good about what it is that we're trying to do in these spaces. Being at the table is not the same thing as being able to show up fully as yourself, you're saying. Exactly. That's exactly it. Um, Sometimes we're, you know, invited to the table, but it's only to, you know, like-mindedness in the sense of tell us what we're doing is okay for the whole of every, and not to say that that's always the case, but um, to actually voice and speak to what's important to you. And you've said that disruption of the current narrative is the real DEI. So can you give me an example of what a disruption of that narrative could look like right now? I mean, I think sometimes we focus on what it is that the marginalized community and the space can do. But I feel like a true disruption of that is, let's just say for transparency, the white people at the table saying, you know what, because that's important to you. It's important to me. Let's let's move on that. Let's explore that in the way that you want to explore that without projecting and imposing what they think because they feel they know what this experience is like. Um, I feel like um, at some point we have to stop shining the light on what it is that the marginalized community needs to do in that space. Um, You know, in the film, I think what's great about one of the A story, the legacy story is what you hear about my aunt laying that groundwork, Kitty coming in and she saw a need. She assembled the diverse team, the what little people there were in that space to say, hey, this is important to us. And Kitty, Let's just to be clear. Barbie. Yeah, she was the first yes. designer of the first black Barbie. Yeah, right. The first black woman designer that Mattel would hire in 1976. She assembled the team, she went into action, and of course, going to the diverse um, people within that, they feel and see the need and see that it's important. And then she made it happen. And Stacy would do the same thing in the sense of she saw a need with um, the sewing style line and the barrier she was trying to conquer in there, she's, you know, she says like, I wanted to make something that retailers could not say no to because no matter how much you make the product, you try to market the product, if the retailers don't put it in the store, then you're not gonna see the product. So um, she saw a need and this is all collectively what, the marginalized communities, the black, brown people, you know, those people are doing to push forward. And we often put the spotlight on what it is that we need to do and bring to the table to push the needle forward. But I do think that the other half of that is um, the reception and disrupting takes the other half at the table. You're listening to Coastline. 
Legeria Davis is a filmmaker with us today exploring her documentary, Black Barbie, which is part of the 2023 Kukalora Slate. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Beulah Mae Mitchell was on Mattel's first production line for Barbie in 1959. She went on to become one of the first black employees in Mattel's corporate office, and she was a catalyst for the creation of the first black Barbie. But it would be a couple of decades before a melanated doll would hit store shelves named Barbie. Mitchell's niece, Legeria Davis, didn't learn about her aunt's role in the history of Black Barbie until she was an adult already working in film. And while Legeria didn't play with dolls as a child, learning about the impact of this particular toy on the psyche of children who grow up to be adults was part of her discovery during the making of her documentary, Black Barbie. And Legeria, you actually spoke with Um, an academic, a professor at Cal State Fullerton in the Child Studies Department. And she set up basically a conversation with children. And you guys had in mind that famous 1940-something Clark doll study. But this was not a replication of that at all. but, But you had it in mind. Can you talk a little bit about what this conversation was set up to to be and to explore? Um, Yes. So, you know, basically being aware of the Clark um, doll test, it it seemed to make sense for our film to kind of explore um, what kids thought today. Um, And so we employed Dr. Amir Safir, who came on board to like really build out this conversation, as you said. And, you know, we wanted to sit down with, you know, all the range, age ranges, the different age ranges, all the different cultures, um, ethnicities, race, um, and just to sit down and see what they're playing with, what they're engaging with. Um, We now have media as a part of the Barbie verse that is just as prominent as the actual Barbie dolls them, themselves. And so, um, yeah, we just set out to hear the voice of the future generation. Um, and we have a, a clip from it. And in, in this particular clip, it's, it is kind of hard when it's just audio. We're hearing kids pick up both black and white Barbies when they talk about which ones they prefer and why. And so maybe on the other side of this clip, you can talk about what we actually heard in this and maybe what surprised you as well. Tell me which one is the prettiest one to you. The prettiest one to me, Mm -hmm. I think, is um, Brooklyn. Brooklyn's the prettiest? Yeah. 
Why do you think she's the prettier? Because she has black skin like all of us. Oh, she does have black skin like all of us. That's true. That's very true. And she also has a unique ability to play the guitar. Which one do you think is the prettiest? This one's the prettiest. What makes this Barbie so beautiful? Because of her dress. You like her dress? Mm-hmm. Is there anything else about her that makes her beautiful? Her shoes. Her shoes. Because I love her outfit. Mm-hmm. And I love her hairstyle. And you love her hairstyle, too. Because I like that it's straight. Mm-hmm. And you can make it in different forms, like a pigtails or like a ponytail. Well, I just like the style. I like her shirt and mm -hmm. her purse, mm -hmm. these beautiful shoes, and her hair. You said something about body type. Tell me more about what body type is. Like she was full size, like this Barbie. So these three are the full size Barbies, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what other body type did you say? And then like skinny, like this one. Like this one or this, this one. one. This, this one, one, the astronaut, and then the one she's playing with. Oh, okay. Can I see yours? What about her body parts makes her thin? Her arms look kind of thin. She's like the preferred weight like, for girls. Mm-hmm. Like, she's the preferred weight? Yeah. yeah. Tell me more about that. Some people judge you for not being, like, for not being fit or mm -hmm. not being skinny. Skinny. So. so the preferred weight is skinny. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And this girl is the preferred weight. Mm-hmm. They're all hourglass figures. Mm-hmm. And they all should be different. Like, some should be bigger, some should be smaller, some should be in the middle. And I don't understand how they're all different because they're all hourglass figures. And that's from the new documentary, Black Barbie, by Legeria Davis. And of course, Legeria, in that clip, I think one of the first children's voices that we heard picked up Brooklyn Barbie, which is a black Barbie, and said this one was the prettiest. And then we heard another voice um, talk about the dress being the reason that he thought or she thought that the white doll was prettier. Race was never quite, skin color was never addressed. What what did you take from that? And what surprised you about that conversation? Yeah, I think um, one, kids are smart. Man. Um, I think that we don't really take into account what they're really picking up on um the unique ability to play the guitar um as one of the reasons why she thought brooklyn was beautiful um like seeing that they were leaning into the fashions and the abilities um of the dolls was a bit of a shock i think um i don't think any of us were thinking that they were they would pick up on, on these types of things that would be attributions to beauty and why they would want to pick something, right? Um, and so I feel like hopeful um, with sitting and talking with our kids and seeing how affirmed and their identity and how um, varied their vision of beauty was right that just didn't play on the physicality 
and the, as you said, the, the skin tones, the culture. Um, and also I feel like we've heard this before in the sense of kids aren't, they don't come out being this divide racist or, you know, these are things that are taught. Um, and so, you know, kudos to the parents for the work that they've done with these children in order to affirm them and who they are. Um, and so it seems like a very, um, like such an amazing foundation um, to start from. And I think what our film does is, you know, we start there and then we can, uh, as we progress, we start to see the cracks that yeah. start to come into that foundation. And yes, yes. We do have another uh, short clip from that particular conversation in which the facilitator this is the conversation that's been set up by Professor Safir, but that's not the person who is facilitating the conversation. Um, she asks what the kids know about race. And before we listen to this clip, can you just remind us of the age range of the kids that we're hearing from? Um, yes. I think the youngest that we had was four, and they go up to 12. Okay. So what if it's well? Let's listen from Black Barbie. When you talk to your mom and dad and your family about race, what words do they tell you? Hmm? Do not judge a book by its cover. Oh. So what does that mean, do not judge a book by its cover? Like a, like a Karen that's making fun of you. They say that it's not okay for cops to be mean to us and... and put us on the ground because we didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Some people with black skin get mistreated because some people uh, don't like black skin and it's called racist. Oh, they say it's just like okay to be you even if you look different in the world because mm -hmm. you're still human mm -hmm. like everyone else. Mm -hmm. That's a conversation from the new documentary Black Barbie by Legeria Davis. Legeria, it's really hard to listen to these tiny voices. This little boy who sounds so beaten down, he's squeaking out, it's not okay for the cops to put us on the ground when we didn't do anything wrong. I mean, you just the innocence of this child and the fact that he's already aware of this. Yes, yes. and that's the reality. Um, yeah, this is what they're seeing. And the parents are doing their best to stay affirmed, but also explain what they're seeing. Um, and on one hand, I think Sometimes it feels like we're gaslit as the community that the things that are happening isn't because um, of being black. It's because of, you know, having done something um, wrong or, and we know, again, it's not the case. And these kids are picking up on that. And it's really sad, you know, with the, 
the little boy at the end where he's like, you know, it's okay to be who you are, even if you are different. Um, and being able to embrace those differences because how he ends it is, you know, you're still human. Um, and sometimes when we see these atrocities of, you know, you know, black bodies in the streets, you know, we received the funding for the film. Um, we started to get that traction in 2020. Um, and it, you know, I've always just thought, and these are things that I have to reconcile within myself, that it shouldn't take the blood in the streets and being in your own home, minding your business, sleeping, you can't even be safe there. It shouldn't take that for this film to the, the this conversation to have to be valid, to to be relevant. It shouldn't take that, but that's oftentimes what it takes for. And again, it comes down to the psychology of this approach to diversity and inclusion that we currently have still leaves the marginalized communities feeling not worthy, not valued, not seen or heard until it's time to be performative and put a black square up without any real progress or action. And um, you've seen some examples of that just with the film. And in finishing the film, it's it's gotten a good reception in the places that it's been shown. As I mentioned earlier, it was part of uh, Working Films and Kukaloris's Film Lab project. I mean, it was, it was chosen for that. So now you're running into a kind of similar, we want you at the table, but we want to whitewash parts of the film or the parts of the film aren't palatable to some parts of the white community. What are you running into with that? Are there, you, you said to me, there are parts of the film that people have asked you to remove or tone down. That has happened. Um, and my goodness. What is upsetting uh, white people with this film? <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a white person, so I can't speak to that. I'll be honest. You come to the table and you tell me what um, doesn't sit well with what we're saying in the film. But I, I know that as a creative person, we're often asked, you know, why are you the best person? to tell this, this story. And to ask, to, to be asked to do certain things makes me not the best person to tell the story. Like, um, this is the story and the lens and the gaze that myself and the team that helped put this, this film together um, has chosen to tell and my thought on that is if I'm gonna fail 
telling a story. It's going to be with my own voice. And as we can see that this film is, it doesn't feel like it's destined to fail at all. And for the marginalized communities, I feel like to see it soar would mean so much. Um, and already the way it speaks to the community, what I've heard, the feedback, um, ultimately this film is, you know, for black women, black girls, by black women, about black women and black girls, and they feel seen and heard with this film. And that is the intentionality and the authenticity of the voices behind the film. Um, and we should be allowed to have that, regardless of how it makes um, a certain community feel. And that is this edition of Coastline, the documentary, is Black Barbie, part of Kukulora's 2023. Legeria Davis, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you for having us. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode along with links and resources at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.